Hey everybody, it's Patrick with the Film Editing Podcast at www.filmediting.com. We're back with part two of the Donald Petrie interview. If you missed part one, I encourage you to go back to the website and check it out. Here in part two, we talk about film editing. We also talk about miscongeniality, just my luck, and a whole lot more. If you have any questions or comments for me, you can always email me at patrick at filmediting.com or call our voicemail line, which is 206-202-AVID. That's 206-202-2843. If you haven't done so already, please be sure to put your name on the Frapper map, which you can find a link on the podcast page of the website. It lets us know where you're listening from. And without any further ado, here is the second installment of the Donald Petrie interview. Hope you enjoy. Now, when you work with editors, you work with a lot of the same editors more than once. What do you look for when you hire an editor? Oh, sexy. (laughs) (laughs) Don't tell my wife that. (laughs) Or or Deborah. (laughs) Um, Oh, she'll probably be listening to this, I'm sure. Uh, You you know what? I I look for, uh, first of all, is a sensibility. Mostly what I do is comedy. So I want to know that they're going to get the joke. There kind of is an art to cutting funny, knowing how to cut the joke. Like I said before, what's a funny word? The old comedy rule, K's are funny, mm-hmm. duck is funny, goose isn't funny. In cutting, sometimes it is the difference between but um bum and but um And you need somebody who's got that sensibility. I also look for somebody who, I look for this in any crew member, but most importantly, the editor. I look for somebody who's going to bring something to the party. Mm -hmm. Part of your job as co-editor, you know how you look at the the dailies and look at what my selects are. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm one of those frustrating directors who doesn't make selects, as you noticed. You always print out these nice note things (laughs) for me to have while I'm watching the dailies so I can pick my, my wanted takes, and I almost never do. I'll write down, I don't like this take if I mm-hmm. find something I really don't like. But I almost never choose what I do like mm. because I want you to choose. I want you to have input as far as what you think is the best performance. I don't want to be a puppet master dictating, use this, use that, use this. I want you to bring your sensibilities to it. Indeed, when a director plans how they're going to shoot a scene, they work out, well, I think I'll, I'll probably in the editing room, I'll start on the close-up and then I'll do the pullback to the thing. I never tell you that either. I shoot a lot of coverage. I have in my mind what my plan was, but I don't tell you. Mm-hmm. Because what if you come up with a better idea that beats my idea? I may have never seen that had I already told you up front, well, I want to start on the Mm close-up. Now, sometimes I'll go in and go, oh, no, 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 that's not working. Let's try what I had intended, Mm -hmm. you know, start on the close-up. That's the other thing I look for, mostly. Someone who has a strength of their own convictions about the cut of the movie. I don't want somebody who's just going to be a mamby-pamby and say, whatever you want, chief. (laughs) I want somebody who's going to have the guts to say, I don't think that's as good. I think this way is better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that performance is better. And why? Mm-hmm. I- I'd much rather have that kind of a repartee with my 
editor, my cinematographer, whoever, then just I'll do whatever you say, boss. Yeah. So when you get to a scene in the cutting room and you feel like it's not quite working, is there anything you do to like kind of get your mindset out of however you previously conceived the scene or something you can do to, to think about how to change it you know, when, when it's, you're up against a wall like that and you think pe- people aren't going to quite get it? Well, Howard Hawks has that famous quote, if the scene isn't working, cut it as short as you can so that the audience doesn't have to sit through it um, and get on to the next thing. That's true. I find sometimes you just have to almost abandon that cut and go back to the dailies and and start from square one. I think one of the biggest lessons I learned, I think it was pretty much on Mystic Pizza, uh, Marion Rothenberg, a great editor, she was able to see beyond the scene, and the dinner table scripted has a beginning, dinner table scene has a scripted beginning, middle, and an end. And she would say, well, what if we put the end in the middle and the beginning at the end and and absolutely reverse lines? She would grab a a reaction shot of an actor from another scene and put it in mm. here. If it mm. was a close-up enough and you couldn't quite tell where they were standing <laughs> and it worked, who cared? She was amazing that way to, to say that in the editing room, you are in some ways rewriting the script for its last time. And you have to have the freedom to do that. If you just edit exactly what is written, then you're robbing yourself of yet another chance to improve upon it. Yeah. Boy, I sound so intelligent. (laughs) I'm fooling all these people. (laughs) How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Yes. When you were shooting that in New York, how tough was that on the streets? You know, I've, I've never been on a shoot in a city like Manhattan where you're on the street and you're doing, and you're filming on this this busy town, how difficult is that? Well, the funny thing is, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days was actually the the easier shoot in New York because, A, we had more time, mm-hmm. um, and the stars were not as big. I mean, Kate mm-hmm. Hudson, fabulous star, and so is Matthew McConaughey, but they weren't known, say, as much as... Sandra Bullock and Michael Caine mm. on the streets of New York doing miscongeniality. Oh, okay. So I'll 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 briefly yeah. tell you about that. I mean, we gathered first of all, we were shooting like on Fifth Avenue or Madison Avenue. And we were at a time of year just before Fourth of July or summer. I mean, it was the crowded time of year in New York for shopping. I would say it would not be too much to say we would get crowds of seven, eight hundred people wow. on each and every corner watching, and we're trying to shoot. A couple of tricks that you learn. Remember, I had shot the equalizer. Mm, so right. in television, I did weeks and weeks of shooting in New York series television. And indeed, my assistant director, Ellen Schwartz, now producer and assistant director, uh, she was a second AD on those equalizers. In fact, she's from New York. She talks like this, you know? (laughs) Anyway, Ellen and I kind of know every trick in the book for shooting in New York to the tune of 
hide your cast, tell everybody to take five minutes, but be ready to go, and then yelling out very loudly, okay, everybody, that's a wrap. See you tomorrow. (laughs) And all the crowds disperse. And then on a silent cue, you go, okay, everybody, go. And you run back out there and man the cameras and shoot your scene. Um, We've also had the camera rigged with a mirror. So the camera is pointed east-west, but we're actually shooting north-south. Oh, really? You see? So everybody's looking where the camera's pointed. Sure. Meanwhile, the scene's going on way off That's to the funny. right. <laughs> That's funny. I never thought of that. That's um, a good idea. We've, we've done a lot of tricks like that. <laughs> Long lenses help in New York mm. uh, because you're a block away from where the actual action is happening. You know, if you're on a long telephoto lens, then you can pick out the crowd. Mm. The other secret to shooting in New York is that New York has the best extras in the world. Mm. Extras in L.A. and extras elsewhere, you know, it's it's the low-paid job. And it is in New York, too, but they're all Screen Actors Guild. Mm. So instead of getting people who are wannabe actors doing that job, Mm. you're getting actors who show up and they know they're just background. They're supposed to just be walking on the street. Well, if you go some normal, you know, shoot in New Orleans or, you know, someplace else, an actor, a, a, an extra told, okay, walk from here to there, does exactly that, like a robot. They just walk with no purpose, no idea. Where they're actors, so they're going, okay, I'm a businessman, I'm a stockbroker, I'm on the phone, I'm talking about <laughs> this trade that I got to get done. Now they're miming it because they have to be silent, or I'm going to be a pizza guy, uh, you know, d- delivering pizza. I'm going to be, they each come up with a full character, even though wow. they're just crossing in the background. <laughs> That's wild. They're amazing. And, and because of that, you can go to them. And you can rely on them. I have, I've had scenes where I cannot stop the regular people on the street from passing through. And the regular people on the street would look at the camera. Mm-hmm. So I would tell the extras, hey, do me a favor. All the real people on the street, distract them. Make noise, do whatever. Get them <laughs> to look at you. Even if you say, hey, Joe, how you doing? And, they, you know, they're going to look <laughs> over at you and not look at the camera. You see? That's funny. Those are the kind of things, we, the tricks we pull out. Any of these extras in New York, have you ever had one in a movie and gone, you know what? I want this guy to talk. I want this, this guy a speaking role. I want this guy to be All more featured. All the time. In Just My Luck, we have a scene where Lindsay melts down in a restaurant and looks down at a guy's plate because she's really hungry, and he's kind of finished. She says, are you going to eat that? And he kind of looks at her like she's this homeless person, and and then she, like, picks up his bacon and starts to <laughs> eat like a, like a crazy person. That was just an, extra, just an extra, a New York extra. But I knew I could rely on those guys to actually act. Mm. Had I been shooting that elsewhere, 
I'd have insisted on casting that part. Mm. In New York, I knew I could get away with finding the right look from the 20 or 30 extras. I found the guy I thought looked right for it and just sit him in that chair and let him go. That's great. So it seems like there's a through line of New York. A lot of the movies you've done take place in New York. Is that a is that on purpose? Do you like to shoot in New York? Or is that something that's just by chance the scripts you've liked take place in New York combination? Um, gee, you know, I guess I guess uh, a lot of romantic comedies, uh, you know, happen there. Uh, I don't, I certainly don't uh, go out of my way necessarily to say, oh, no, I only look for movies that are shot in New York. Mm-hmm. However, the great thing about that city is point the camera in any direction looks great. Yeah. It's that exciting and vibrant a city. So I can see why it gets picked so often as a as a central location. Yeah. Well, let's talk about Just My Luck since that's coming mm-hmm. out May 12th and we want everyone to go see it. Yes. We know that Mission Impossible 3 comes out the week before, but... And Da Vinci Code comes out the week after. However, I do have a recommendation for all the people What's listening. What's that? First of all, wait on Mission Impossible till the second weekend, okay? Then pay for just my luck and sneak into (laughs) Mission Impossible. That's what I, you know. And then the next week, when Da Vinci Code comes out, pay for for (laughs) just my luck and sneak into Da Vinci Code. In fact, that way, you could probably pay for just my luck 10, 20 times and never see it. Uh, it'll um, never leave the theaters. It'll never leave the theaters <laughs> if, if, if if you keep uh, paying for that. You know where I got that idea? Where's that? I went to see Finding Nemo with my son, mm-hmm. and I got to the theater, and they said, "Oh, sorry, it's there's only seating in the first row. It was that sold out." And I went, "Well, I tell you, there's only two of us. We'll buy our tickets, but we can come back if we can't get a good seat." He said, "Oh, yeah, sure." Went into the theater; it was empty. Well, Saw, or or no, it was, it was Chainsaw Massacre, was opposite the hall, but that was oh. rated R. So all the kids <laughs> were buying Finding Nemo tickets and going into the theater wow. showing Chainsaw Massacre. So I got the best seats in the house for Finding wow. Nemo. So I figured, gee, if they're doing that, maybe they can do the same with my movies. Oh, my God. That's amazing. There's my recommendation. Pay for just my luck and see whatever movie you like to see. Everyone take note. (laughs) need to do that. When you were shooting in New York for Just My Luck, was shooting on the streets compounded because Lindsay Lohan was in it and she's such a target for the paparazzi. It's just amazing how much they just, like, you know, are attracted to her. It's too bad that that she's that much of a paparazzi magnet because it does add another wrinkle to the difficulty of shooting. I'm sure. On the other hand, um, you kind of want the paparazzi because they're great press for your movie. That's true. Every time a shot shows up in the paper, it's Lindsay Lohan filming Just My Luck on the streets of New York. Yeah. So you want to work with the paparazzi and yet try as best you can to control the paparazzi. There were there were a few scenes where there was rain in the scene and we were making it rain. Well, I just said, uh, instead of making it rain in the half a block that we need it to rain, 
let's make it rain for a block and a half because <laughs> the paparazzi aren't going to stand out there and get wet. That's funny. Um, again, I'd use the New York extras. I'd say, see that uh, camera guy over there? Well, why don't you stop in the middle of the street and, you know, uh, be eating a hot dog and chatting with your other extra friend here, which is exactly in line with the guy's shot of Lindsay. So uh-huh. I would use them and and they'd know why they were there. So if the camera guy moved, they'd saunter over <laughs> and get in his way again. You see? That's great. So um, again, I have to thank the New York extras for helping me out. That's great. And we have some listeners in in England, and they'll know the band. I'm sure that's in Just My Luck, McFly, McFly. But yeah. how did you find them? What was the process like trying to find the band to be in the movie? In Just My Luck. Chris Pine, who is the the leading man, is a wannabe music producer. He's found a band that is working at a dive called the Rock and Bowl, which we actually filmed at the real Rock and Bowl in New Orleans. I could have cast four actors to play band members and fake the instruments in which case I would then have to find all my music or get it written and then have other real musicians record the music, et cetera, et cetera. Or I thought, what an opportunity for a real band. I mean, how many bands are out there all over the country looking for this kind of exposure? So at first we started in the States. But I found that, frankly, I found that when I got the idea of going English, I thought just because they talk different (laughs) would make it so that the acting wouldn't show up as amateur as it was because they sound different. (laughs) And then I'd heard about this band McFly and our music supervisor brought in one of their videos which had a lot of charm, a lot of humor. They wrote the song. They played the song. They had a hit album in England. It was almost a no-brainer. Still, I flew over and met the band and went to a concert with them. And indeed, like in the bus on the way, what I would do is I'd say, okay, guys, which one of you is the sexy one and they'd all point like a tom <laughs> and and okay which one of you is the funny guy and they'd all point at danny so <laughs> this way i kind of got to know whose personality was what and then wrote the script all their dialogue was divvied up according to their real personality and when it came to acting lessons i just said to them go rent the beatles movies and watch them <laughs> Because they weren't actors. Yeah. They just were themselves. And I wanted them to be able to be themselves. So that's how we did it. And I tell you, it turned out terrific. These are four incredibly, incredibly talented young men. At first, we picked a song that was on their current hit album. But I realized... Gee, by the time this movie comes out, that album's going to be two years old in England. Mm -hmm. So I said, what are you working on next? 
and they played me some of their stuff. So we have in the movie some some of their stuff that was unreleased. That is now actually the album is out now. The album McFly, Just My Luck, is out in the record stores now. Do yourself a favor. It's a treat. You'll love it. Go buy that album. You were saying you rewrote the script for them. Is that something that happens frequently as you're casting, going through the casting process, that you're rewriting roles? Or once you find a script that you like and you start developing that, how much does it change from the start to when you start shooting? You know, every every script changes in some way according to the cast. Uh, a script that wasn't necessarily written for... Adam Sandler would get written for his kind of comedy, just the same way it would be. The same script would be totally different if Jim Carrey was going to play the part. Here was a, a kind of a unique situation where uh, the band was just written kind of generically in the script. Now I had a real band that were really from England. Mm-hmm. I could write in that kind of background, that history for these guys. They use their real names in the thing. It's not Danny Jones playing some other character name. Danny is Danny. But I'd say there's uh, writing going on every time. Uh, in Miss Congeniality, I, w- I was out to dinner with Sandy Bullock. And some joke was made at the table, and she laughed and went, <laughs> you know, that <laughs> snort. And I went, oh, that is our character. <laughs> Keep that. And that became a regular thing that whenever she laughed as that character, it was a, you know, laugh. So there are things you're going to find just by getting to know the people, the actors themselves, and rewrite it to use the best of them. Mm -hmm. I have a listener question from Steve in Tennessee. He wanted to know what films inspired you. Oh, wow. Let's see, Steve in Tennessee. Um, Let's see. I like Tennessee. Blue Ridge Mountains, Knoxville, Knoxville, (laughs) Tennessee. My sister lives in Tennessee, and I still have not gone yet. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, you can go to Dolly Parton land? Yeah. Wow. Uh, I can imagine the entrance. (laughs) I can. (laughs) (laughs) Um. Uh, there, there's two of them, and they're round. <laughs> um, let's see. You know, so many films have inspired me, but having grown up in England, I would say I was mostly inspired by British comedy. Hmm. And of my age, that would be Peter Cook and Dudley Moore, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. like that. Certainly Monty Python, but much more the, the the more character-built, subtle sensibilities of English humor drive me than, say, the more blatant, broad, uh, slapstick American comedies. Mm. And that's not the, to say that I don't like those. Listen, I can go and laugh hysterically at Naked Gun, but I don't think I would be the guy to direct that. I kind of... I look back at Peter Sellers' mm-hmm. uh, movies, movies that are big inspirations to me in in, in current times. Um, Forrest Gump, Being There, the Hal Ashby movie with Peter Sellers. 
those are the kind of movies that uh, really inspire me. I mean, who can't get inspired watching The Godfather? Mm-hmm. But it's not what I do. Yeah. But I can still go to a movie like that and thoroughly enjoy it. Some like it hot. Mm-hmm. Some like it hot. Billy Wilder, you know, comedy, one of the greatest comedies of all time. In fact, on AFI's list of the 100 greatest comedies, I think it may be number one. I think it was, yeah. Yeah. Comedy is tough. What, who who yeah. was it said? Uh, dying is easy. Comedy is hard. <laughs> That's right. I forget who said that. I think it's much more difficult to make a comedy that works than to make a drama that works. Just because everyone's sense of humor is so different. When you start a comedy and you go through the process of previewing, does that help you in any way as far as the comedy elements of the Well, first of all, as a director and in the screenplay, you have to set the rules. In the first two minutes of a movie, usually, you're telling the audience what kind of a movie it is, whether they're allowed to laugh or not. Mm -hmm. In one movie... Arnold Schwarzenegger, like in True Lies, in the first two minutes of the movie, kills 27 guys, uh, snaps their necks, kills, you know, a Doberman who's jumping up on him. Uh, but you realize it's it's that kind of James Bondy movie where death is, it's only a movie. Mm-hmm. It's a movie death, so it doesn't really count. Mm-hmm. Whereas a different kind of movie like Munich, or Syriana, or something, if one person is killed, it's heart-wrenching mm-hmm. because you've set different rules for your movie. You've actually told the audience cinematically and story-wise that it's okay to laugh or it's okay to feel that these people aren't really dying. Mm. Case in point, Grumpy Old Men. Original screenplay started at the end of the movie with a kind of a bookend. You started the movie at what you thought was the funeral for one of these guys. You meet Daryl Hannah, who plays the daughter of Jack Lemmon. You meet Kevin Pollack, who plays the son of, of Walter Matthau, and they're meeting and they're saying, are you ready for this? Oh, God, I, I don't know. I, 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 guess, I guess so. Our fathers, and they start to talk about their fathers, and then you flash back in time. And you see them doing the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And it, it, three quarters of the way through, Jack Lemon has a heart attack. And then you back to present time and they're back at the funeral. Mm-hmm. And are you ready for this? And they go into the funeral, but it's not a funeral. He's fine. He's alive. He's getting married. Mm-hmm. That was, okay. the, that was the, the switch up. Well, what happened in the first preview of the movie is we were so good at convincing the audience that it was a funeral, nobody would laugh. Oh. We had told the audience, this is a drama. Oh. So then you met, you know, the first time you meet Jack and Walter, he says, morning, dickhead. Morning, moron. Right? Dead silence. Wow. Absolutely dead silence. And state, then you meet the tax guy who's coming to, you know, where's where's Mr. Goldman, you know, and all that. And, I mean, we didn't get a laugh at all. It was, it was that first screening was excruciating. Wow. So we went back, lopped off the whole funeral opening, 
I didn't have anything else to put in its place, but I did have a whole bunch of second unit shots of the locations where we had shot in blizzard snow. I mean, it looked so cold. You felt cold in the theater. And I put these shots of Minnesota and the music was, we're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. (laughs) It immediately allowed people to laugh. And then when you came out, morning, dickhead, morning, moron, they were already laughing. They were already with you. That's amazing. I told them it was a comedy, and it changed the entire movie. That's amazing. That goes to the power of editing, which a lot of people don't realize how powerful and important it is. Just even moving a couple of shots can make a huge difference in the reaction people have to it. Right, um, right. It's, it always, it, to this day, it amazes me when we're working on something, and you just make a subtle change. And you wouldn't, uh, you know, necessarily think, oh, it's not going to make a big difference, but it can make a huge difference, and it's so important with that storytelling. Well, sure, sure. I, I mean, case in point, you know, when you're seeing the little kid in Close Encounters of the Third Kind staring up at these alien ships that's landing and the little aliens who are running around, and he's going, hey, you know, like this. He wasn't really looking at aliens. <laughs> you know, Spielberg brought in some clowns or whatever for him to look at. Yeah. So he'd so it's all about the editing. You've got to find those looks that give him that awe and then cut to what you want him to be in awe about. Yeah. Well, I feel like I've taken too much of your time. It's already we're over an hour, and I could oh. talk to you for hours because I love your stories. I, I hope uh, hope we haven't bored the audience. Out <laughs> I'm there. sure we haven't. <laughs> but again, thank you so much for talking with us. And everyone, go see Just My Luck coming out May 12th. Go see it three or four times. Buy the ticket to Just My Luck, like you said. Yeah, buy the ticket to Just My Luck, and then sneak into Da Vinci Code. That's that's what I say. And I. Sorry about that, Ron. <laughs> but I, I don't... Us little guys have to go up against the monster. <laughs> That's great. Thanks so much, Donald. You're very welcome. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that. That's the end of the show. Uh, give me a, an email at patrick at filmediting.com. Let me know what you think. Also, if you have any questions or comments, you can call us on the comment line. And that number is 206-202-AVID. That's 206 202 2843. And don't forget to go to our website at filmediting.com. Go to the podcast page and you'll find links there for uh, a couple of things. One is where you can vote for us in the Podcast Alley pages. Go there and vote for the podcast. Also, you'll find our Frapper map, a link to the Frapper map where you can put a pin in the map. So thanks so much again to Donald and we'll talk to you again soon.